You're listening to CFRC 101.9 FM, an Apple a Day Public Health Inquiry Podcast, or PHIP for short. The aim of this podcast is to show that public health is more than infectious diseases and health guidelines. Throughout the series, we'll get to know some of the people behind public health. In each episode, we invite a public health professional to share their career journey and experiences. Stay tuned to the end of each episode as we also include a segment on some of the best places in Kingston to promote a greater sense of community and we play a song recommended by our guest. My name is Tiffany Harianto, and I'm a Master of Public Health candidate at Queen's University. I graduated from the Bachelor of Health Sciences Honors Program at McMaster University, where my honors project included making research on music and mental resilience more accessible to the public. As someone with a musical background, it's important to me to raise awareness on how we can apply our interests and passions to promote health for everyone. I'm also the program intern of the Beyond Words program at Union Gallery, which provides a safe space for students and members of the Cataraqui Kingston community to use art and conversation to promote wellness. I'm excited to co-host the podcast in Apple a Day. Through this podcast, I hope listeners will gain a deeper understanding and appreciation of public health. And I am Peyton Bailey. Like Tiffany, I am a student of Queen's University's Master of Public Health program. I have an academic background in physiology and microbiology, while personal interests include infection prevention, youth engagement in public policy, and the use of mass media to facilitate health education. I am delighted to work alongside Tiffany on this podcast and to learn more about the diverse areas of study and implications under the realm of public health science. I consider this podcast an opportunity for listeners of all backgrounds to gain a new perspective of health and how it intersects with various aspects of our society. Dr. Bradley Stoner received his MA degree in anthropology from McGill University, followed by MD and PhD degrees at Indiana University. He then completed internal medicine residency training at Duke University Medical Center, and subsequently undertook infectious disease fellowship training at the University of Washington in Seattle. Prior to his appointment at Queen's, Dr. Stoner was an associate professor of anthropology and medicine at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri, where he specialized in the clinical care and epidemiological analysis of sexually transmitted infections. He is past president of the American Sexually Transmitted Diseases Association, and is board-certified in infectious diseases and internal medicine. Dr. Stoner regularly collaborates with colleagues across medical, public health, and social science fields to address complex issues in STD and HIV prevention and control. All right, so thank you for joining us today, Brad. Delighted to be here. So to start us off, could you describe your career journey to us? My career journey? Well, I um, uh, it's, it's hard to know where to start. I... Uh, uh, I was always interested in science as a as a, a kid. I uh, did science fair in high school, and I uh, studied math and chemistry and biology, and I was very interested in the uh, life sciences in particular. Um, so uh, when I was in high school, I was pretty sure I was going to be a doctor. Uh, so I think that's where how I started off, you know, heading towards. I didn't know what public health was at that time or anthropology, uh, but I, I liked I liked biology and I liked uh, um, uh, studying about living systems. So um, 
uh, and, and so I was an undergraduate at Harvard, and I um, was studying uh, biochemistry. Um, but I took a, an elective course in anthropology uh, and thought this was a really interesting um, arena because anthropology is the study of humanity. It's the study of human the human condition in all its forms. There's social and cultural anthropology. There's a, a biological anthropology and archaeology, and all of those things tie in together um, to um, uh, inform the human condition. Uh, so I actually um, uh, still wanted to be a doctor, but I switched my undergraduate studies to anthropology as my as my field of concentration, and ended up pursuing that. I got a master's degree at McGill before going to medical school, and it was at that time I thought. You know, you could kind of combine these and, and do uh, become a physician and get an MD and then also get a PhD in anthropology. Um, so, uh, so that was really my, um, my interest at that time and uh, um, uh, still focused on the biological side of things. I was, uh, um, I was really coming into anthropology as a bioanthropologist and I was uh, most interested in human adaptation. So that took me to South America. I, I spent a year in uh, Highland, Peru, studying um, uh, adaptation to altitude, um, uh, where there was a lot of uh, interest in what happens in hypoxic environments. When you ascend to a certain uh, altitude, then the body kicks in and you get a, a more rapid respiratory rate. You actually generate more, um, uh, more red blood cells from erythropoietin production. Athletes have known this for years. When they train at altitude, they become you know, super fortified. Uh, and uh, but what happens chronically over time to populations that live at altitude? Um, but I also found the effects of poverty were quite profound too. That that almost um, superseded the impact of altitude. So I was focusing on the biology and what was the physiological effect of living in a high altitude environment. But these were people that were having a really hard time just just making ends meet. They were farmers and and herders and. Uh, um, uh, barely had enough money to, to buy uh, food for their family. And that was a much bigger stressor on the body uh, than, than altitude. So um, I uh, actually shifted my focus uh, as a result of my fieldwork from the biological factors that affect health to the, the uh, more social and political and economic factors that affect health. Uh, and that kind of led me towards the path where I am today. So I think it was that transition of being in the field, being in Peru, working with uh, um, um, agro-pastoralists really uh, showed me the impact of poverty as a determinant of health and uh, and really um, led me towards uh, wanting to make a difference in that way so that was really the early the origin my origin story if you will as a as a professional I think that's really fascinating and anthropology in particular is a very broad field and we've had some conversations as my academic advisor about medical anthropology specifically. Mm -hmm. Would you be able to describe how you first learned about medical anthro and what your takeaways from this particular field are? Well, that's a great question. Uh, uh, medical anthropology is really the study of health and healing in cross-cultural context. Uh, and McGill University had one of the earliest and best medical anthropology training programs. I was very fortunate to, uh, to have studied with Margaret Locke. Uh, Ed McGill, who was uh, one of the pioneers in the field. But it's really the study of what people do when they get sick and how they try to get well. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, t it's moving away from the science and more towards the, uh, uh, the humanity of being sick. When you're, when you're sick, you may not think about it, but being ill was actually a very vulnerable experience and uh, challenges your, your conception of who you are, what you believe in, uh, particularly when you're very, very ill, and uh, or when your child is ill, and, and when you think you know that life is on the at, at stake and, and life is on the line, uh, values that are deeply held come to the fore. 
Um, so uh, it's very important in terms of development uh, when um, Western health experts come into, um, say, a, a location that has traditional indigenous beliefs and ideas about health and wellness. And, and Western um, uh, well-intended um, um, uh, health professionals want to come in with things like antibiotics and vaccines uh, and uh, conceptions that emerged out of um, Western ideas of of health and illness, hygiene and sanitation, all of which is very important. But uh, but people also have uh, their own beliefs and and views about what makes um, what what helps people get well. And these may uh, uh, border on religious beliefs, spiritual beliefs that are sometimes at odds with Western conceptions. So it, it helps explain why uh, people might reject antibiotics, might reject uh, certain medications that are introduced into those contexts if those are felt to be at odds with underlying conceptions of um, um, say spiritual beliefs on, uh, about uh, um, life, the afterlife, uh, and what people need to do to, to stay well. It's often confusing and vexing to Western health officials when people have access to vaccines and, and then don't accept them. But if they think that the vaccine is going to prevent them from, um, uh, say, having uh, being able to have more children, uh, now some of these are unfounded beliefs, but yet they're beliefs nonetheless. And so uh, anthropology gives voice to those beliefs, doesn't validate them as much as it recognizes the importance of those beliefs to people's lives. So coming back to your question, Tiffany, it's really the, the study of of how, what people do, what they believe, uh, and, and how they behave when they get sick, and, uh, and uh, um, uh, trying to understand how we can work with communities uh, to help improve health, um, uh, as opposed to being a very top-down, paternalistic, which is, which is a, a historical way that, that Western health promoters have, have approached health in developing countries. Thank you for sharing that, Prad. Uh, you mentioned that during your time at McGill, uh, McGill was really providing one of the very first sort of medical anthropology programs, and they, they were really at the forefront of that field. Yeah. How much has medical anthropology grown in recent years? Are we seeing a lot more prevalence of, of this field in practiced medicine? You know, that's a great question. It really has grown significantly, and it's involved. It's much more than just the study of health and illness in a developing country. Uh, we use anthropology all the time uh, in, in Western societies in the U.S. and Canada to understand why people do what they do. And um, a lot of it is now uh, a, a commonplace in terms of the kind of methods that anthropologists use, uh, uh, long-term participant observation, ethnography, uh, qualitative research. A lot of that's been incorporated into standard public health practice uh, because uh, uh, quantitative studies can give you a certain sense of what's going on with a phenomenon, but qualitative research lets you understand what people think <clears throat> and uh, helps clarify their values and their motivations for, for perf performing certain behaviors. So there's a lot of anthropology now at um, uh, places like uh, um, uh, Public Health Agency of Canada, uh, CIHR, in the United States, the CDC, uh, anthropologists working as anthropologists, but also as social scientists alongside um, epidemiologists and other health professionals doing mixed methods research. So I think the principles of anthropology have really been embedded now within public health to a great degree. Um, and there's more and more uh, opportunity to get trained in medical anthropology. If you look at, at uh, universities that offer undergraduate programs, unfortunately, we don't have one at Queens, but uh, many, many uh, universities across Canada have medical anthropology training programs. And, uh, and those people go out and get jobs in um, health systems uh, domestically and internationally. 
I agree that this integration of public health and medical anthropology can really be very beneficial. So many of our listeners are aspiring public health professionals, including epidemiologists and biostatisticians. So how can we as future public health professionals better integrate medical anthropology and the lessons from this field into our work? I would say the best way to do this would be to recognize the subjective nature of illness, uh, which is concomitant with the objective nature of disease. Uh, and, and so one of the fundamental principles in medical anthropology is the distinction between uh, disease and illness, which uh, in, in common usage, those words tend to mean the same thing. Uh, but in anthropology, they have a very different uh, meanings. Uh, typically, we, we think of a disease in, in anthropology as something that is objective and verifiable and observable from the outside. Um, HIV infection would be a disease. I can you know, document the presence of an antibody and the presence of a virus that causes uh, um, um, you know, reduction in CD4 counts and so forth. But illness is a subjective experience, and uh, they, uh, illness often overlaps with disease, but not always. Um, and some people take HIV again as an example. Um, uh, people with, with HIV infection who have not, who don't feel ill, um, uh, or may not even know that they're infected, uh, by definition would not have an illness because they have not perceived themselves as being affected uh, by by this infection. And so you have these disparities between the objective, verifiable disease um, and the subjective, perceived illness. Uh, and it happens in other arenas as well. Hypertension is another example where if you walk around with high blood pressure, um, we know if your blood pressure is very high, you're at increased risk for complications like heart attack, uh, stroke, um, and, and long-term disability. Um, but often people with high blood pressure don't feel unwell. Um, and it takes measuring their blood pressure, it takes educating people, it takes um, um, demonstrating to them the, the benefit of, of, uh, of uh, reducing their blood pressure for, the, for their own benefit and to the, to the, to the benefit of their family um, uh, to, to get them to change their behavior. And, and we've done that with great success by, by recognizing that uh, simply because you have a disease uh, doesn't always mean you have an illness. And uh, part, of the, part of the mission of medicine and public health, I think, is to, is to help people recognize when their behaviors are um, self-destructive detrimental to themselves and to others, and uh, how they can take um, precautions to improve their health and wellness. Um, so I think those are ways that anthropology can be incorporated into everyday public health practice, just the recognition that uh, disease and illness don't always go together. It's really fascinating stuff, Brad. Thank you for sharing. I, I'd like to take a bit of a step back, if you're okay with that, um, to your self-described origin story. And an interesting pattern I've noticed in this series is how frequently health professionals have pivoted in their careers, and you sort of pivoted from biochemistry to anthropology right. during your undergraduate studies. And so I'm wondering, were there any particular experiences or mentors that really shaped your interest in anthropology and want, made you want to pursue that pathway? Well, that's a great question. I think uh, I mentioned one. It's a professor I had at McGill named Margaret Locke, who was uh, really one of the, the, I wouldn't say the first, but one of the, one of the foremost anthropologists who, who uh, uh, consistently did very good work in 
um, in a variety of arenas, publicizing the importance of an anthropological perspective uh, for improving health and wellness. Um, and another was a, uh, was a psychiatrist named Arthur Kleinman, who uh, did a lot of seminal work on uh, distinctions between disease and illness uh, and, uh, and uh, um, helped me understand that uh, uh, it's not always the biology. And the biology is, is the driver, but it's, it's really the behavior and the social context that uh, provide meaning uh, to, to, the, uh, to the disease state. And that disease-illness distinction, I think, is really, uh, um, you know, really paramount. And I, I use it, you know, every day in my clinical work as well, that, um, uh, recognizing that, that patients have their own particular experiences of illness that affect what they do and why they do it. Um, it's easy to blame someone for not taking a medication as prescribed, um, but if it makes them feel bad and they get a stomach ache every time they take it, and they're not telling you, uh, you can you can uh, uh, completely miss the uh, miss the underlying context. So I think those are those are two mentors that have been really helpful to me. I think it's amazing that you've had these mentors in your life who have shaped your interest in anthropology and your passion in it as well, and. You briefly mentioned it earlier just now, but would you be able to share some more specific examples of how anthropology has shaped your practice? I think uh, in a number of ways. First of all, methodologically, anthropology lends itself to long-form observation and the use of qualitative methods. Um, I use quantitative uh, methods in my work all the time. Um, I track uh, disease rates, particularly in, in HIV and STIs. Uh, you have to count the number of cases. Uh, you have to know, you know, what, whether case rates are rising, whether they're falling. Uh, we have to model disease transmission. Uh, that's very, very quantitative, and I work with epidemiologists and other quantitative uh, researchers uh, every day. Um, but the anthropology, to me, is a is a way of um, of uh, embracing and uh, normalizing, um, uh, I don't want to say just qualitative methods, because many anthropologists do use quantitative uh, methods, but but the traditional anthropological um, uh, observational approach, participant observation, uh, has, has been of, of great value in helping to understand the nature and shape of epidemics um, and, uh, and can add a lot of insight into things like vaccine hesitancy, uh, that we've gone through with the COVID crisis. Um, we tend to think as, as public health professionals that um, if we have a successful uh, intervention, uh, it could be a medication, it could be a, a vaccine, it could be an educational program, that people will embrace it simply because it's effective. Um, but there are other uh, values that people prioritize besides health. Uh, and we found with the COVID crisis uh, um, um, that there's only so much personal freedom people are willing to give up uh, in the in in the name of of uh, uh, the health of the community, um, so I think anthropology gives us a, a lens to look at that. Uh, so that's at that sort of the individual level of understanding illness behavior. But I would also say anthropology gives us an opportunity to look more at the macro level and some of the political and economic drivers of uh, the conditions that we face. We saw tremendous health disparities um, in COVID, um, uh, the impact of COVID on communities where. Um, people who could afford to stay home early in the pandemic um, were less affected by uh, the pandemic. They could, they could afford to not be out in public. Uh, people who uh, have to work for a living, particularly in service uh, positions for service industry uh, jobs, public service, where they need the money uh, and they couldn't, they couldn't not go to work, 
uh, had a greater impact. Uh, the pandemic had a greater impact on them. So I think highlighting the disparities of access, disparities of, of impact, uh, is something that anthropology also lends itself to. I really like that you bring up some of the political determinants of disease, and I know this is an area that some of your recent projects have delved into. I was just wondering if you have any recommendations for our listeners um, in what actions they can take to better recognize and act on some of these determinants of health. It's very easy, I think, to um, individualize health responsibility, uh, and I don't want to discount the importance of taking good care of your own health. Uh, it's, it's great to not smoke. It's great to eat healthily. It's great to get exercise. It's great to get a lot of sleep. Um, all of those things are important, and we should strive for those good health behaviors. Uh, but I don't think that's the only thing that's driving why people stay healthy. And I think if you look at the larger uh, socioeconomic, political landscapes in which people live, um, uh, it's very clear that uh, individual decisions about health um, uh, only have a certain amount of explanatory power for understanding why people live longer in some communities than others. Um, as you may know, I moved to Canada from the United States, and we um, uh, are fond of talking about zip codes, which are like postal codes in Canada. But uh, um, there's a, a, a truism that says your zip code is more important than your genetic code for determining your health outcomes. And I think that's really true. Um, uh, people live in areas uh, of other people who have similar life circumstances, uh, particularly around uh, money and, and socioeconomic status. Uh, and zip codes where uh, uh, income levels are lower are characterized by higher rates of uh, gun violence, higher rates of, uh, of, of um, uh, maternal mortality, higher rates of uh, early death from any cause. Uh, and, and so those kinds of of societal determinants. We haven't pieced all of them together, um, but I think recognizing that people's health outcomes are not necessarily a consequence of their own behaviors is really, really important. They may be, they may be making the healthiest decisions they can make under the circumstances that they, are, that they find themselves in. Uh, one good example in, in U.S. cities is uh, uh, how people want to get exercise, they want to go out and walk, but sometimes they don't feel safe in their own neighborhoods uh, being out, uh, and, and they can't afford a gym, uh, and, uh, and also uh, food deserts uh, playing into access to healthy foods. Uh, uh, the more uh, nutritious foods tend to be more expensive. The cheaper foods, the more accessible foods tend to be less nutritious, higher in carbohydrates, higher in fat. Um, and, uh, and so there's, there's a general uh, feeling that the, the deck is stacked against people in terms of um, access to health-protecting resources if they don't have a lot of money. Uh, less starkly so in Canada, I find, uh, but still there's a, there's a sense of a gradients of health. So to me, that's one way of, of recognizing that, you know, yes, an individual who's suffering from whatever condition, sure, there's a certain amount of health responsibility that they need to take for their own health, uh, but they can't do it by themselves. Society has to, has to kick in. I agree, and I feel that a way that we can explore this further is with qualitative research, as we've discussed earlier in our conversation. And I'm wondering, because a lot of epidemiology and biostatistics tends to emphasize quantitative research, how can we better integrate quantitative with the qualitative? That's a very important 
aspect of the kind of work that we need to do in public health, and it's increasingly embraced by my quantitative colleagues. Uh, you might get the impression that quantitative and qualitative are, are diametrically opposed. Um, they certainly have different model systems, different understandings, different epistemologies, um, but they go hand in hand in so many ways, uh, and it, they can they can be uh, performed uh, uh, simultaneously or sequentially um, to address particular questions of concern. Uh, and increasingly, funders are recognizing the value of these kinds of combined approaches. Uh, I previously used the term mixed methods, but that's that's terminology used that we use when talking about a study that engages both quantitative and qualitative methodologies to address the same issue. Um, uh, uh, surveys are, are typically quantitative uh, uh, kinds of, of enterprises. We're all used to filling out surveys. You, you know, answer a number of boxes, there's fixed responses, and then you can quantitate uh, uh, numbers and, and look for, for trends among people who have responded in a certain way. Um, but qualitative work is, is, uh, is also very important because it helps address the why um, as opposed to the what. I think the quantitative can tell you the what, how many people are doing whatever it is you're interested in. Uh, we don't know exactly why. Um, uh, in some of my work around STIs, we found that uh, uh, patients with gonorrhea and chlamydia were actually bypassing a local health center on their way to an emergency room, which was actually farther away. We could surmise why that's true. We could say, well, it's probably because uh, they didn't, they, they, they were concerned they might get recognized at the, at the facility that was near their house. They might see someone they know, or um, they were concerned that um, uh, there might not be the expertise to take care of their problem at the local health center, and they wanted to go to an emergency room where they had specialists who were more highly trained. Those are all suppositions. Uh, we don't know from the quantitative data, um, but qualitative research would then let us ask a subset of people, um, you know, what, what was motivating you? What's, what, what was the underlying reason for your behaviors? Um, and I think that's, that's a really important addition to, um, to public health work is mixing those quantitative and qualitative. The challenge is in the details. Qualitative research is uh, time-consuming, um, and um, uh, sample sizes tend to be smaller. So generalizability is not always achievable. You can't always be sure you're getting a random sample of a population. But that tends not to be the goal. The goal is to understand the richness of the human experience. And it really is an anthropological kind of understanding, if you think about it that way, because you're really giving people a chance to talk about themselves and talk about their own motivations. Um, and it's not always true that what people tell you is truthful. Uh, and, and that's another challenge of doing qualitative research is trying to figure out when people are um, uh, actually telling you what the, the, the real reason, uh, just because someone said it doesn't make it necessarily true. So, so giving the, the, the kind of mixed methodology gives a, a, an opportunity to uh, do what we call triangulation, which is to view the same phenomenon from two different angles uh, and, get, uh, and get a different perspective on, uh, on, on what's, what's happening. So the what as well as the why. I think that's fascinating, and I'm particularly interested in qualitative research myself, and I'm aware that you're one of the instructors for the Qualitative Research Methods course. So could you share how your experiences throughout your education and your career have influenced your teaching style? Well, thank you for bringing that up. I think the Qualitative Research Methods class is very important and very well-received class here at Queen's. Uh, we, we've, it's being offered in a number of different venues. We found that we have a qualitative research methods class 
in public health sciences. Uh, there's also one in the School of Nursing. There's one in the uh, School of Rehabilitation Therapy. Um, and it's because all of these different disciplines find value in qualitative research. Um, uh, I think my teaching style uh, really is, um, uh, is driven by uh, the nature of the work that I've done and the effort to uh, expansively uh, share with students um, the kinds of uh, a value that I think qualitative research adds to uh, an individual research question. What we're trying to do in the class, I'm co-teaching this uh, qualitative research methods class with Colleen Davison, uh, my colleague in public health sciences, and what we're trying to do is empower students with enough information that they can access uh, as they move into the workforce, uh, because I think qualitative research is going to be something that it's increasingly um, uh, incumbent upon public health professionals to know something about. Um, uh, I, I talked about surveys, for example. Every survey that I've ever taken, uh, not every one, but many at the very end say, what else would you like to add? Uh, there, there's opportunities for adding uh, free text responses, and I think that's a really important uh, part of survey methodology is what have we missed? What else would you like to tell us? Many people don't put anything in that box, but but a lot of people do. And if you've got a survey now that has a, you know 1,000, 2,000 respondents, and uh, even if 500 people wrote something in the box, that's a lot of qualitative data that you've got to deal with. Um, so just understanding how you can make sense of that. It's not just reading them and, and saying, oh, you know, what did people think? It's, it's the systematic um, uh, coding of thematic elements of the responses uh, that we try to teach in the qualitative methods class. So we're trying to arm students with the theory as well as the method for, um, for going out into the workforce and using qualitative methods uh, to make a difference in, in their own work setting, settings. Thus far, we've really hinted at some of your work involving sexually transmitted infections. And of course, that, that takes up a good portion of your career. Yeah. Would you just be able to share with us what really triggered your interest in that subject in the first place and what continues to drive your interest? Well, I mentioned earlier I was interested in high-altitude biology and adaptation at altitude. Um, and I ended up uh, as a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Washington in Seattle with full intention of going back to do global health work around uh, in high-altitude communities. Uh, but the moment that I arrived, uh, there was a tremendous uh, a research group that was working very hard in the area of sexually transmitted diseases, sexually transmitted infections, that were looking for anthropologists to help them with some of the questions that they were addressing from the biological side. So I was a, it was a situation of me being in the right place at the right time. I, I had no intention of studying STIs uh, at all, uh, really. And uh, I found myself uh, in a situation where surrounded by um, uh, uh, really expert uh, bioscientists who were studying the, the, the pathophysiology of gonorrhea and chlamydia and syphilis, uh, studying the epidemiolo uh, changing epidemiological patterns of these infections, um, and really uh, uh, wanting a more anthropological lens to shine on uh, these infections as they were continuing to do their research. So I got drawn into a number of research projects uh, simply by having anthropological credentials. Uh, uh, as, and, and as a postdoc, that's great when you've got a lot of people that are doing research and they want you to be a consultant or a contributor to their projects. So within about six months, suddenly I was working on six or eight different STI projects 
uh, as, a, as an anthropologist and saying, well, you could, you know, why don't we get a subset of people? We'll do a focus group with this group of people here. We'll do some qualitative research with this group of people here. Oh, these are women with pelvic inflammatory disease. We'll talk to them. And they'd say, fine, you know, help us get this through the uh, ethics board. Uh, in the States, it's called the IRB, Institutional Review Board. Help us get these projects up and running. So, so in very short order, I was sort of drawn into this arena and then developed a clinical expertise in a lot of these infections as well, so that when I ended up getting a faculty job, I suddenly now had a clinical expertise as well as a research focus that uh, uh, was not by intention. It was really by default. It's, I, I fell into it. Um, and so one of the one of the lessons I would say for uh, for listeners is that you never know, uh, you know, what doors are going to open. Um, uh, I uh, uh, was not my intention at all. I, I thought maybe I'd be a surgeon or I'd be a cardiologist or some kind of normal doctor instead of being a, uh, an STI HIV specialist. Uh, although I have found the field very rewarding, um, but it was uh, it was really just a happenstance of being in the right place at the right time. This is actually a recurring theme throughout our conversations, including in previous episodes, this notion of opportunity arising even when you don't expect it. So what advice would you have for our listeners regarding being able to seize opportunities when they arise? My recommendations are to be well prepared to, um, to act on opportunities as they present themselves. Uh, and my analogy for this is, is the, the kid who takes the baseball mitt to the ball game, hoping to catch a fly ball. Um, you almost never do uh, uh, because there are very few fly balls that come your way. So you're going to take the mitt to the ball game a lot uh, and, and not catch a fly ball. But one day you might find yourself, suddenly there's a baseball coming at you, and you're the one that happens to have the mitt. So I think getting, getting education is really a lot like that, uh, having excellent undergraduate training. Uh, I'm a big fan of the master's programs. Uh, at Queens uh, and the students in our MPH program really are well prepared uh, for whatever comes their way. The master's degree, they've got a lot of skills. Uh, you may not necessarily need the exact skills that you're learning in the classroom, in the jobs that you get, but you will have demonstrated to employers that you know how to learn uh, and that you can learn on the job, and you'll have enough understanding of the fundamentals of the field to uh, to be successful in whatever comes your way. So I think it's really about being pre-prepared, if you will, for uh, taking advantage of life's opportunities. I think it's a bit funny that you mentioned uh, you seizing an opportunity with STIs because really you became quite a prominent member of, of that community. And so I was just wondering if you could share some of the highlights of your time as president of the American Sexually Transmitted Diseases Association. So I, that's, a, that's a, another good question. I, uh, um, after my postdoctoral training, uh, I ended up in St. Louis, Missouri, where I was on faculty at, uh, at Washington University, uh, and I became the medical director of the local uh, sexual health clinic, um, where they needed a physician to set protocols and oversee the nurses and nurse practitioners who were seeing patients. Um, so I developed a clinical expertise that then lent itself to um, research to uh, elucidate uh, the most effective treatments uh, for various conditions. So I was in, involved in studies to help look at uh, improving treatment outcomes for, um, uh, for uh, STIs, uh, both in terms of new medications, but also in terms of um, uh, standardizing the dosing intervals and uh, um, uh, follow-up uh, times and so forth. A lot of these, uh, a lot of what uh, we call clinical practice or expert care is based on um, 
people's suppositions and, and uh, uh, what we call expert opinion. Uh, the, the, the idea is, well, we, we think this is right. We think you probably need about seven days of treatment. Uh, but in many cases, there, there had been no clinical studies to, to, to validate uh, those treatment outcomes. Is seven days better than 10? Is, uh, is three days uh, worse than seven? So those kinds of studies uh, needed to be done, and I was in a position of contributing data to a number of those kinds of studies, and ended up uh, then um, uh, being invited to places like the CDC in Atlanta uh, to uh, contribute to expert uh, panels that would put together treatment guidelines. So I was involved in the, the generation of, uh, of guidelines for treating sexually transmitted infections based on the, the best available evidence, uh, and, uh, and helping to train other physicians uh, uh, around uh, uh, around the country um, uh, with uh, best practices for STI care. So these are evolving uh, practice patterns. Uh, you know, the, the way we practice medicine in the 1980s is very different from uh, the way we would do it in the 1990s or the 2000s. And so physicians do have to keep up to date on the latest uh, treatment uh, approaches, uh, not just because practice patterns change, but also diseases themselves change. Uh, antimicrobial resistance uh, drives a lot of uh, what we do in STI. Uh, so a lot of the drugs that we used uh, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, are no longer effective for treating these conditions. And so uh, where do you know uh, um, uh, that the resistance is emerging? How do you know the resistance is emerging? What tests should you use? All of those things lent themselves to uh, clinical studies and uh, a generation of uh, self-improving guidelines which put me into a position then of working with organized groups like the American STD Association, which is really a, it's a professional organization of practitioners that tries to raise the profile of STIs, STDs uh, in, the, in the national consciousness. So part of the mission is to improve practice patterns uh, for physicians taking care of patients, but it's also to raise the visibility of the field for advocacy so that funders like uh, uh, the U.S. government uh, would pay attention to this, and we would, we would advocate for more funding for, for STI control uh, and prevention. Prevention is always better than cure, uh, and, uh, so, uh, but you need a robust health apparatus uh, at, the, at the state and local level to implement prevention strategies. For STI, uh, uh, prevention means education. It means vaccination. Uh, it means outreach and testing for people who have been exposed uh, it means screening for uh, populations at risk, uh, um, um, uh, sexually active young adult uh, men and women who are at a risk for acquiring STIs um, would benefit from um, greater access to care and to, to, uh, to medical tests to determine if they're infected. All of this depends on available funding. So part of being involved with the American STD Association and then beyond that, in my work internationally, I'm now the regional director for North America for the International Union Against STIs, which is a global prevention organization. But it's, it's really, it's the same type of work. It's advocacy, it's awareness, it's outreach, uh, and it's generating, um, uh, uh, hopefully, resource allocation. Uh, in a very competitive world, you know, STIs are important, but so is heart disease, and so is cancer, and so is neurodegenerative disorder. So all of these diseases are really, really important, and um, Alzheimer's disease, everything needs help, everything needs money, and there's there's only so much money to go around. So uh, we recognize that, but we want to raise awareness about the importance and the impact of these infections. I think, you know, going back to your question about social uh, determinants of health and how that can be mobilized, 
Um, in STI, it's, it's very clear, sure, individual protective behaviors are really important. We want people to protect themselves, use condoms, uh, you know, behave responsibly. Um, but, but sometimes when disease rates are very high, even the best protective strategies don't work, and individuals find themselves as uh, uh, victims of bad luck. Uh, more than anything else, not not that they uh, are uh, the cause of their own problem, but that they um, uh, found themselves in circumstances that led them to um, to to get an infection that they weren't intending to get. And I think we have to treat everybody uh, that way with uh, with respect and with uh, uh, with kindness and generosity of spirit. Uh, and so my work with ASTDA and uh, and then and later with IUSD has really driven me in that in that area. You've had a lot of many amazing experiences, so I think that's awesome. And I'm curious now, what inspired you to come to Queen's University then? Well, Queen's has always had such a tremendous reputation in Canada. And as you know, I, I studied in Canada when I was younger. Uh, my spouse is Canadian. Uh, we've been living in the United States, but we've got, we've got relatives on both sides of the border. Uh, and uh, uh, when a chance came, to, uh, came open to come to Queen's University, uh, it seemed like a great opportunity. It was a it was a chance to come and help uh, help restructure and reorient the uh, the public health sciences department in the School of Medicine. Uh, and uh, I had a particular skill set that I think uh, uh, was attractive to the faculty here that would give them uh, a, a different perspective on things uh, than they had. Uh, our, our department is very strong in epidemiology and biostatistics. Uh, and I can hold my own in those fields, but I'm, not, I'm neither an epidemiologist nor a biostatistician. I'm a, a medical anthropologist physician. Uh, so it's a little bit of a different perspective, a different skill set, uh, and it would lend itself to um, you know, adding uh, uh, um, new instruction, new courses. Uh, you talked about qualitative health methods that had kind of fallen away, away uh, from, our, um, from our course catalog, and we were able to, to revive that uh, for our students. So, uh, so it was just a great opportunity. The only downside was it was uh, during the COVID crisis. Here at Queens and other institutions we've mentioned, you've again assumed positions of leadership. Mm -hmm. So I was just hoping, Brad, you could share with us your style of leadership and some advice you might have for future leaders in public health. Well, I appreciate the question. I mean, I think my style of leadership is, uh, I like to call it a very flat uh, uh, leadership style in the sense that I, I do want to uh, make sure that every, every voice is heard to, to the extent possible, that, that we have a very um, uh, an outstanding faculty uh, and our faculty members are incredible researchers and people have different points of view. Um, I want to make sure that all voices are heard about a particular topic before, um, before making a decision that would affect uh, how we do things um, uh, or to disrupt uh, too much uh, systems that that uh, have proven to work very very well, um, uh, I think uh, public health sciences as a department at Queens has a, has a tremendous track record of excellence in uh, in uh, both training uh, in epidemiology and biostatistics, but now increasingly in public health. So, uh, but there's always room for improvement, and I think what we have to do in in uh, uh, my style of leadership is to identify what are the friction points, what are the areas where we can make uh, minor corrections that can have a big impact. And what are the areas that will have um, uh, more lasting impact, but that would take more time? Uh, one example of this is our recent foray into talking about mini courses or, uh, or the development of modules. Um, uh, one thing we've discovered is that there's some topics that students need to learn about, but probably aren't. There's not enough content to fill an entire semester course. Uh, 
Um, but many of the faculty are excited about developing mini courses around particular areas that we could offer. Uh, medical anthropology would be a good example of a mini course. So you could do a half course in medical anthropology. Students could take it as an elective and couple it with another mini course, such as critical appraisal, uh, or uh, Dr. Heather Stewart was talking about developing a mini course in psychometrics. Uh, you know, psychometrics is something, you know, how, how do you measure mental health outcomes? There are lots of different ways. Some models have been tested, some haven't. So what's what are the best approaches? Um, not something you could probably fill a whole semester course with, but something you could do uh, in, in half a semester. So those kinds of things will take more time. Uh, my leadership style really is to, uh, to, uh, to be as consultative as possible uh, uh, so that um, uh, uh, people feel that at least they've been heard. Uh, and, uh, and that's my recommendation is to, is to uh, uh, make sure that, that all voices get a voice. That's definitely really important, and I'm looking forward to seeing the future of the MPH program, especially being able to discuss in the recent town halls. So these are all really great and exciting changes. And to go back on what you mentioned earlier, how you came to Queens during the pandemic early on. So I'm wondering, what motivated you to help spearhead the infection prevention and control specialization? I'm so glad you mentioned that because uh, we're very proud of that specialization. Um, for listeners who aren't aware, we have developed the first in Canada uh, and maybe even the first in North America uh, specialization in infection prevention and control, or IPAC, that is fully embedded within a master's program uh, in, a, in, a, uh, in a public health uh, department or school. Uh, so we've uh, uh, we've engineered a track or a specialization program within the Master of Public Health curriculum that focuses on principles and practices of infection prevention and control that will allow graduates uh, uh, to uh, not only get a master's degree, uh, but also have the fundamental skills that would enable them to get a, a position as an infection prevention and control specialist in any of a number of venues. Um, infection prevention and control is critically important for keeping uh, society uh, healthy. Infection prevention and control deals with uh, things like air exchange. How many how many air how many uh, liters of air does a room need to have uh, to keep its occupants healthy? Um, how many uh, liters per minute does the air have to exchange? Uh, and there are standards that are set um, in in different settings. Uh, uh, um, uh, it's it's uh, uh, more important to have high rates of air exchange in an uh, operating room, for example. So high airflow in an operating room to keep the patients uh, and uh, the practitioner safe. Um, and in uh, classrooms, they have their own standard as well. So, so these sorts of things are now uh, increasingly uh, in the public consciousness. And I think there's going to be tremendous uh, uh, growth in the infection prevention and control um, arena. And Queens is really well positioned to, uh, to capitalize on that. I think the reason we developed this program is that we had an opportunity to collaborate with IPAC Canada, Infection Prevention and Control Canada. That's the number one professional organization of infection preventionists in the country. And we are now their, their preferred provider of IPAC training throughout the country, and they'll be sending students to Queens uh, to investigate our program. So I think the future is really bright for this, and we're um, uh, developing IPAC practicums for our MPH students uh, it's, uh, it's a really great opportunity for students to, to get in on the ground level. It's really exciting to hear about, especially since both Peyton and I are part of the IPAC specialization. And I'm curious to hear more about 
what you're hoping for students to achieve, either through the specialization or through the MPH program in general? I think what I'm hoping students will achieve is a greater sense of the importance of prevention in all arenas. Uh, we talk about prevention and control, but really prevention is, is uh, such an important paradigm. Uh, and medicine is a, a treatment paradigm. There's, there's some prevention embedded now in medicine, and we have screening exams for various cancers and, and uh, various other conditions. But mostly you go to the doctor uh, uh, to get better uh, when you're sick, um, and that's, there's still always going to be a role for that. Um, but the greater impact is going to be on the prevention side. So for IPAC, uh, keeping people from getting these infections is always going to be uh, uh, more effective and less expensive than curing the infections once uh, people get them. Uh, so I think, uh, I think uh, prevention uh, paradigm is what we want people to get out of it. And also the recognition of the cost impact, um, you know, to keep society running uh, the most efficiently, um, uh, spending a little bit of money up front for prevention strategies can have profound uh, uh, cost savings down the road. And I think we have to be reminded of that. It's sometimes easy to pare back in, uh, in, in prevention strategies because there's no immediate payoff. Um, you know, when a surgeon does an operation, uh, you can see what the operation achieved. The per patient got better and, and uh, they were able to, to restore that person to health. Uh, prevention uh, activities have less of an immediate demonstrable effect, and so it's, it's sometimes harder for funders to get behind them. It's very exciting to hear about some of the initiatives that you and Queens are involved with right now, especially with regard to the IPAC track. And it's exciting, too, to think about what the next generation of public health students will really achieve in their careers coming out of a COVID pandemic. I'm, I'm curious, what are some what are some current public health issues that really capture your interest and you think will be quite relevant moving forward? Well, clearly, as a sexual health practitioner, I think HIV and STIs are going to come back into public consciousness. Uh, we had a moment last fall with MPOX uh, where there was a, a, a great concern that this was going to spread. It was called monkeypox, but uh, the name has been changed to MPOX. Uh, and in uh, the the outbreak was relatively quickly contained, but it could have spread uh, much more widely without uh, more aggressive uh, public health intervention. So I think infectious diseases of all sorts, but particularly STIs and HIV, are still going to play uh, an important role. Um, certainly, uh, uh, chronic disease is very, very important. And cancer uh, is, uh, uh, Queens is tremendously well known for its cancer research, and I think uh, there's going to be a tremendous role for um, prevention strategies around cancer. And then finally, I would say aging. Uh, as societies get older, as people live longer, uh, the um, dementias and neurodegenerative disorders are going to be um, tremendously important. I'm wondering, what are some of your current and coming up projects? So I'm currently working with colleagues here at Queens on uh, advancing HIV prevention uh, through a, a, a technique known as PrEP. If you're aware of, of PrEP, PrEP stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis, and it's actually uh, taking uh, uh, medication daily uh, to prevent acquisition of HIV uh, when exposed, and, and uh, PrEP is underutilized. Uh, it actually can be used as a, uh, it doesn't have to be daily, it can be uh, intermittently, um, and uh, uh, trying to get more um, individuals uh, who need PrEP uh, to, to get access to PrEP is, is one of the projects that I'm working on. Um, also interested in, in uh, uh, modeling of, of STIs and working with colleagues 
uh, at the health unit, K, K, the KFLNA health unit, to um, understand uh, uh, particularly around syphilis transmission because it can um, affect pregnant women and then can be spread to um, to their unborn children. And uh, infants born to infected mothers can have serious complications. Uh, so treatment of pregnant women with syphilis has got to be a number one public health priority. Uh, but the, they don't always come to clinical attention in a timely fashion. So how do we uh, implement testing strategies that uh, uh, maximize detection of syphilis uh, in pregnant women? Uh, you've only got a nine-month window, uh, which is a short period of time from a public health perspective. Um, so uh, those are some of the things that I'm interested in right now. Well, Brad, I think we're reaching the end of our time for this episode. It's been really exciting learning about your work and what I think is really a bright career in public health leadership. Something we like to do at the end of each episode is ask a couple of fun questions, and I'll let Tiffany get started on that. All right, then. So sometimes we rotate some of our fun questions. So our first one is related to the public health system. So if you could change any one thing about Canada's current public health system, what would it be and why? If I could change any one thing about Canada's current public health system, what would it be and why? I think I, if I could wave a magic wand, uh, I would uh, double the number of primary care practitioners uh, so that everyone could have a family doctor. Uh, one of the things that I've discovered uh, from uh, from moving here from the U.S., the U.S. has its own problems with healthcare uh, delivery, um, but uh, I was surprised at the shortage of family practitioners and the fact that many people in Ontario and across the country don't have uh, access to a primary care physician. Uh, if their doctor retires, they end up on a waiting list. Uh, if you move to Kingston, uh, it can take uh, 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 two years or longer to get a family doctor uh, and uh, and I think that the, the restricted supply is, is a problem. I know that medical schools are trying to address this. Uh, Queens is expanding its uh, intake of medical students, uh, uh, and uh, we'll have a, um, a 20 more seats available, uh, primarily for, for primary care uh, practitioners. Other schools are doing the same thing. But that would be the one thing I would do immediately because I think it could make a big difference, again, for the prevention impact. Uh, when people uh, go to the family doctor, uh, to go to their family doctor. Sure, sometimes they, they're not feeling well, but a lot of times it's for preventive care. And if we can get more people into networks of prevention, um, uh, it could keep them out of the emergency rooms and, and decompress that aspect of the system. So that would be the, the immediate uh, thing, uh, doubling the number of family physicians in Canada. All right. So, Brad, our podcast aims to be community-oriented and part of this involves encouraging our listeners to explore Kingston and really engage with the community. So what, are, what is your favorite place downtown or around campus? Uh, I love Lemoyne Point uh, because I think it's just a great uh, a natural setting, very close to, uh, very close to the city. Uh, I think you can get out of town and feel very uh, close to nature uh, and not have to travel a, a great distance. Uh, so that's, that's probably my favorite place. Um, uh, and a second, a second, a close second would be the little Cataraqui Creek conservation area, uh, north of Kingston. Um, but I think if you want to make a difference in people's lives, the integrated care hub is doing amazing work with, uh, the, uh, uh people with substance use disorders and, uh, uh, housing insecurity. Uh, and if you want to volunteer, um, um, that's an area of tremendous need. Um, so, uh, that, that's, uh, that's different from a favorite place, but that's certainly a, an area of, of great need. 
Thank you for listening to an Apple a Day Public Health Inquiry podcast, produced with the generous support of Queen's University's Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. 101.9 FM CFRC is broadcast from Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabek and Haudenosaunee peoples. For any questions, comments, feedback, or even just dropping a friendly hello, you can reach out to appleaday.phip at gmail.com.